In 2006, I graduated from college and I entered the Air Force. And I quickly learned a favored buzzword of the Air Force, synergy, or perhaps more commonly, synergistic effects. It was one of these seven tenets of air and space power that you memorized and you grappled with in your duties as an officer. The idea that somehow, when you add one and one, you get three. And no, that's not because we simple military guys can't do basic math. Synergy is the idea that when you coordinate one with another, you can produce effects that exceed the contribution of the forces employed individually. In modern war, attrition warfare, that is, wearing down the enemy to the point of collapse by inflicting loss after loss, is rarely the key objective. Rather, the objective is the precise and coordinated use of planes, of satellites, uh, of ships, yes, the Navy gets involved too, uh, of troops on the ground to bring about disproportionate results. That, according to Air Force doctrine, can come about only through synergy. You accomplish more as a whole than the two parts could on their own combined. Now this seems somewhat akin to what St. Paul is talking about in our reading from Ephesians this morning. And that's what I would like to invite you to think with me about. That is, how the church grows, grows as one, and specifically how it coheres, how it grows as a cohesive unity. In the Sunday lectionary, we've been working our way through 2 Corinthians and now Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And one thing that has become apparent is the reality of suffering in the Christian's life. In Ephesians, we've been learning about how the church is to operate, what theologians call ecclesiology. Ephesians, ecclesiology. There you go, an easy mnemonic device. The theology of the church. That's what the letter to the Ephesians is unpacking. The first half of the letter is a lengthy prayer for the life of the church. This is Paul's passion. And then much of the later parts of Ephesians are about relations among the different members in the church. So wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. Paul is painting a picture of what comprehensive oneness looks like. If you recall, Father Canary talked last week on a key theme arising out of Ephesians 2, that salvation is at its essence corporate. Right? It has communal implications that we who are naturally alienated one from another are remembered, are reconnected as one an with one another through Christ's blood. And as Father Canary encouraged us, this reality calls us to radical action. We should be working for racial and intercultural reconciliation. We should be known for drawing other people into our homes, into our families. So then we get to chapter 4, and St. Paul turns at length to explicating this idea of growth and of unity in the body of Christ. It's part of his larger theme of recreating the human family, of a new society that is generated. And Paul says at the beginning of our text for today, in light of this, live worthy of the calling that you were called to. 
That calling, as we learn, is fundamentally corporate. It's not individual. Each individual has a part to play, but it's in relation to the whole. Paul says there's no way that you can grow into spiritual maturity apart from a church body. Paul reminds us that in one regard, we're all essentially the same. He says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Seven times, Paul uses the word one in these opening lines in chapter four. He says, the more you become one, the more you become like Christ. In the triune God, of course, there is a perfect community of persons, a unity of persons. That is the oneness that the church, God's people, we, are to show forth. Now, as St. Paul discusses this, it seems to me that there are two dangers or concerns that we ought to be aware of. The first is a tendency to sort of put a gloss on unity, to assume that by being here in this space necessarily equates to becoming one. Now, it has a large part to do with it, but we should be aware that just by being in church, just by being together, it's sort of all kumbaya, right? We all just hold together. There's no tension. But what Paul, I think, is asking us is, are we growing? Are we growing and maturing in our unity? Because growth also brings, unfortunately, growing pains and struggle at times. That is, we shouldn't confuse a structural unity for a genuine, organically growing and reproducing unity. The other tendency, the other problem, it seems, is to develop and mature in your calling, but to lose sight of how that thing is contributing to the unity of the whole. To become so focused on individual spiritual growth that we lose our bearings as we relate to the one body. This is a problem too. And friends, this is a hard task. If you don't believe me, just look back at the history of Christianity. We experience lots of growing pains. And our propensity, frankly, is to stop growing as one, to fragment. In the early parts of Ephesians, Paul goes to great lengths to describe the work of bringing together Jews and Gentiles in one body. Ephesians at its core is about the majesty of Christ's power that unites Jews and Gentiles into Christ's church. If we recognize the history of animosity here between these two groups, between Jews and Gentiles, this is nothing short of a miracle. Paul says, Christ has broken down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. This is going back to chapter 2. In his flesh he has made both groups into one. He created in himself one new humanity in place of the two, reconciling both groups to God in one body through the cross. So this is the background to Paul's discussion of unity in the body of Christ that we hear about this morning. And if God can do this with Jews and Gentiles, friends, he can do that with any competing group. He can build his disparate body into one people. Brothers and sisters, we live at an exciting time. John Paul II, who as you may remember was the Pope before uh, Benedict XVI and now Francis, 
Around 2000, John Paul II looked ahead and he thought that the third millennium would be an era of reunification for the church. The first millennium witnessed the forming of the life of the church, with all the great councils and creedal statements that came out of that. The second millennium then, he said, was one of growth, but also fragmentation and scattering. The great schism between Eastern and Western churches in 1054, and then the Reformation in the 16th century. And from his vantage point, John Paul II believed that in the third millennium, the church might be brought back together. And there's been some encouraging signs pointing to that reality. Serious ecumenical conversations between Orthodox and Catholics and Anglicans and Lutherans and others. Within our own communion, within the ACNA, I remember in 2011 the Jubilee Pentecostal Fellowship, which is sort of this network of African-American Pentecostal churches in Southern California that they actually represent sort of a myriad of denominations. They joined with the Diocese of Western Anglicans there, and then two years later, at the 2013 Provincial Assembly, the Jubilee Conference was accepted into the ACNA. It was an incredibly encouraging development. People were stunned. Nobody could have dreamed of this. People were filled with rejoicing. Again, a very, very encouraging sign. I also remember hearing reports of delegates as they came back from the 2013 Provincial Assembly talk about how amazed they were that forward in faith folks and churches for the sake of others folks, sort of high Anglo-Catholics and evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail, could be part of one communion. They were amazed. God is doing a great thing, bringing together groups that have been apart for so long throughout his church worldwide. He is healing long-standing divisions. But as important and encouraging as these developments are, and things you ought to be aware of, what I really want to dwell on here in the remaining time is not necessarily the macro sort of 30,000 foot level, but growth in unity at our level, at the local parish level. What does this mean for us at Christ Church and in our community here in Waco? How does our life together bring us to growth into the full measure of Christ and invite others into that unity. If we're honest with ourselves, we know all too, way, all too well the way of division, of building up ourselves alone, of stepping on others to get to where I want to be. It's our natural inclination. We concoct sneaky ways of finding out how others might be getting ahead of us, always posturing myself, right? We think in terms of zero-sum games. If someone's getting ahead, well, then I must be getting behind. My self-interest wins out. Separating myself from the pack, division, is our penchant. And we often can't extract ourselves from this me-focused orbit. My question is, does that natural habit begin to shape our approach to spiritual growth? Do we import questionable assumptions about personal development, about personal advance to the life of the one body? This is where verse 7 cuts to the marrow, Ephesians 4 verse 7. But grace was given. Grace was given. Grace, that unmerited favor from heaven. The grace that first found you. The God who first tracked you down. 
that gracious God will lavish his goodness upon you in equipping you for your place in his body. In our text from Ephesians this morning, there's an interlude, sort of a parenthesis, that was, uh, it's actually not, it was actually not read this morning, it's not assigned in our lectionary reading, but I think it's crucial, and so I'm actually going to read that uh, very briefly. We had verses 1 through 7, and then we actually skipped down to verses 11 to 16. Uh, and again, it's easy to skip over them, but they're crucial. They talk about when Christ ascended on high, it says, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. When Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Christ, Christ is the linchpin to this whole thing. The image of a conquering king, his captives in tow as he returns from the conquest. It's this victory ode. The victorious ascended Christ gives from his largesse, from his bounty, great and wonderful gifts to you and to me. It points to the power of God. In our psalm for today that we read responsively, Psalm 114, we hear of that power, right? In a vibrant metaphor and some very colorful lyrics. It talks about how when Israel came out of Egypt, when they were walked away in freedom, this sort of incomprehensible feat, how the world marveled. The sea beheld it and fled, it says. The mountains skipped like rams. Eugene Peterson commenting on this psalm says, the levels of reality are so beyond us that they invite this sort of extravagance of language, right? The mountains skipped like rams. Can you picture that? The earth reeled and rocked and trembled. Friends, it's that power that we must keep in mind when thinking about the growth of the body. That power, because the correspondent side is that our weakness Actually, our finitude, if you will, plays an important role, right? There's an interesting relationship that Scripture sets up between calling and weakness. On the one hand, we have passages such as the one before us today that speak of calling, both sort of a general calling to all disciples, to you and I, uh, to take up our cross, right, to lay down our lives as disciples of Christ. And there's also particular callings, unique callings, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, the various people that uh, they equip. But in the scriptures, there's also a strong current, right, of my strength is made known in weakness. So don't shut yourself off from areas where, where you are weak. For more on this, I'd encourage you to to go back and listen to Father Autry's uh, sermon, the podcast of that sermon from a few weeks ago. He unpacked this idea at great length. God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Press into these weaknesses. Don't confuse calling for personal strengths or areas of brilliance. Don't confuse calling for those types of things. Yielded weakness Weakness given over to God can be at the center of calling. And here's where that idea of synergy, at least in its Air Force doctrinal form, can begin to break down a little bit, right? Synergy in the stratagem of the world entails leveraging our personal strengths. The church may operate this way, but unity may just as well be built through human weakness and God's strength pushing through that. 
Two summers ago, I was reading Mother Teresa's memoir, and in there she talks about how many folks began contacting her from around the world. They wanted to be a part of the work that God was doing through her in Calcutta. Some made the trek. They joined her in India. They took on various roles. The body was being incarnated there on the ground, but a number of them couldn't travel to Calcutta. Many were elderly or had physical disabilities or weaknesses of other kinds. And Mother Teresa encouraged them to pray, to pray regularly, to pray all the time. With her work, she felt like she just didn't have the time to be on her knees as often as she would have liked. But she knew the work couldn't continue without prayer. And so these people did. From far and wide, they prayed. And as Mother Teresa records in her memoir, she believes that the body of Christ coming together in this way, disparate parts, each fulfilling a role, that was what was key to the work of Sisters of Charity, her organization. It's a fitting image, I think, of the body being joined together. It's an image of fulfillment, of maturity. And yet, in the day-to-day, everyday life, we find ourselves sort of so prone to complacency on the one hand, or division on the other. Sort of a my way or the highway mentality, right? These are the two problems, again, restated. Settling for a superficial veneer of supposed unity or pursuing my own growth at all costs. Growing up, maturing into the full stature of Christ, as Paul presents it here, cuts across both of these tendencies. How so? Paul says, walk in all humility and gentleness. Or in the translation that uh, we heard, I think it was lowliness and meekness. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility. Humility. Proper self-estimate. It suggests sort of a demeaning lowliness. Thinking low of yourself was the attitude of slaves and considered a negative trait in the Greco-Roman world. Part of the via Romana, the Roman way of life, the application of Roman ethics and virtues to everyday life was to regard humility as weakness. The ambition of my life is ascension, always going up. Paul takes this to a different conclusion. He says, pursue humility. Pursue the via crucis, the way of the cross, not the via Romana. Participation in the sufferings of Christ Descent is the way of life. This is not Roman. This is not American. Deep down, we deplore the way of the cross. Let's just be honest with ourselves, get that out on the table. We harbor attitudes that go something like this. Thanks for the help, Jesus, but I got it now. I can handle my life, my family, my job, my schedule, my leisure, my education, my marriage, Thanks for saving me, but I'm on my path now toward upward mobility. And it belies a very profound human addiction, that of pride, of independence. This is not growing up into the stature of Christ. Achievement, success, wealth, power, these are what our minds and activities run toward. They are enormously attractive 
We think these things are what give life. And we become people that live to please others, riddled with insecurities. These are qualities not conducive to growing up, to maturing as one body. As I've been making my jaunts back and forth to San Antonio this summer for uh, work down there, I've been listening to uh, some of the Hidden Brain podcasts. And one that I listened to recently that came out in the last month unpacks the idea and the research sort of behind this idea of what's known as the power paradox. That we gain power, that as we gain power, we often lose vision. We begin to see not as clearly. There's something about the seductions of power that makes you lose sight of ethics and other people's interests. Power makes us more self-focused. We lose perspective. We begin to overestimate ourselves. This is the common human tendency, apart from God's grace. For many of us, especially those that are involved with the university, we're pointed towards attitudes of judgment, of cynicism, of pride, of arrogance. We're sort of habituated into these vices. And these are antithetical to growing up, to growing as one. According to the epistle of James, God opposes the proud, right? But he pours out, he lavishes his grace on the humble. What Paul is saying in Ephesians, the way of maturity is the way of humility. Paul then points to gentleness, a genuine concern for others and their need for acceptance for love and for respect. And then patience, tolerance of others' foibles and weaknesses, which include even my own, right? My own foibles and weaknesses, and yet not settling for and encouraging such shortcomings. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. These are attitudes and actions that reveal Christ in us. One of Jesus' most profound parables, I think, is the one about the fig tree and the manure. Do you remember it? A man plants a fig tree, and each year he comes back looking for fruit in great anticipation, but he finds none. And he turns to his vine dresser and he says, look, now for three years I've come seeking fruit, but each time there isn't any. Go ahead, chop down the tree, don't let it waste the good soil here. And what's the answer from the vine dresser? This is in Luke chapter 13. He says, Sir, please leave it alone. Just one more year. Let me dig around it and put manure on it. Then if by this time next year it has fruit, wonderful. If not, then go ahead and cut it down. Friends, Jesus is the vine dresser. He pleads. He fertilizes. He it's patient. So, if you're feeling this morning, well, I'm at a place where I don't feel like I'm really contributing to the unity of the body. I'm not really bearing fruit. I've maybe regressed. The call of Ephesians should kindle great hope in you. That God has not given up on your growth. That he is still pouring out his grace upon you that will bring you to maturity. That he desires you Yes, you, to grow up into the fullness of Christ. What 
a marvelous thing. The curriculum for growth that we are called to involves a persistence in community. It's rather unappealing at times because there's sort of this sheer doggedness to it, right? And a comprehensiveness to it. Our tendency is to sort of cordon off growth into particular areas and never think about how it relates to others, right? I grow on Sundays, or I grow in my hour of meditation, or I grow when I'm caring for my children, or I grow when I get home in the evening, not during work hours. Not imagining how our relationships with a boss or colleagues or even a spouse have so much to do with spiritual growth. We often flock toward people who are just like us, who share our same reading interests or hobbies or laugh at the same jokes, hold the same political views. But the challenge for us here is to embed and to entangle ourselves in one another's lives, whether they are like us or not. So it seems that we can err in a couple of ways, right? We emphasize diversity to the point of loss of unity. I would guess that's actually not a huge problem here at Christ Church, where we overemphasize diversity. It sort of becomes a god. The second, though, is that we collapse all difference. These are, in other, uh, stated another way, the two dangers that I've hearkened back to revisited. Unity, not uniformity, not even unanimity, is what we are after. We don't have to all be the same. Paul in Romans 12 talks about a diversity of gifts, and these are associated with particular graces given to you and to me. Not a dull uniformity, but a rich diversity a colorful mosaic. The church grows through the coordinated and cooperative work of its many members, and it draws others into that flourishing unity. What does that mean for Christ's church? What does it mean for our neighborhood, for friendship with the poor, which we've been talking about and thinking about a lot? How might it entail drawing in the lonely, overworked mother or the fatherless child? Is it walking with a friend who works to relocate their identity outside of their performance, inviting them into a community where failure and yielded weakness is okay? I would encourage you to think about that this week, how that contributes to the growth of the whole. Paul says, each part working properly promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Paul says there's no way that you can grow into spiritual maturity apart from a church body. The whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. That idea of synergy again. But that is not the end of the story. That alone leaves us short, right? The one who ascended on high and gave gifts. It is his work of equipping that we must lean into. God delights. He's overjoyed to pour out his grace in that way. The strength, the plan, the energy, they're all drawn from the head who watches over and provides for his body and imparts the fullness of his life to them. Oh, may we be a people that lean into that grace so that we may grow as one, even as he is one. Amen.